This is Tom Flores, and you're listening to us on iTest for Two. To our weekly eye test for two podcasts. I'm Clark Judge, along with Ira Kaufman, and we're both Hall of Fame voters, and we're both uh, giving you shelter today, Ira. Right? No question about it. I'm. Uh, <laughs> that's one of their best. Clark. One of their one best. Of their I best. think it is their best. I love it. Anyway, our producer Ian Glendon is not a Hall of Fame voter, uh, but he joins us too for some levity and perspective. And also here today, we've got a party, Ira. We've got former Bengals tackle Willie Anderson who is a semi-finalist for the first time, by the way, for the Hall of Fame's class of 2021. And Ira, speaking of that class, we must fill out our ballots for the finalists, cutting to 15 from 25 tomorrow, Wednesday, December 9th. Have you filled it out? I filled it out a few days ago. Uh, and uh, Ian will be happy that the first two boxes I checked off were John Lynch, and Mr. Rondé Barber. And Clark, I know you're on my Twitter feed, and I'm trying to push Rondé to try at least get him into that room. And I texted John Gruden last week and said we were cutting down and that his voice has a lot of clout. Mm -hmm. And can you give me a reason why Rondé Barber is a Hall of Famer? And I don't know if you saw the quote. I did not. He started off with the word because. I mean, that's classic Gruden. Because... He's the greatest slot corner in NFL history. Wow. He's a, he's a touchdown maker, uh, a, a turnover machine, and pound for pound, the best tackler ever at his position. I mean, not too bad, Clark. Not too bad. I have a so feeling. I did, I, I did fill my ballot out. I have a feeling I'm going to hear that quote again in early January or maybe late January when you're making his case. And I also checked off the box of one Willie Anderson. I did. Good. Good. I haven't checked it off, but I will. I will tell you that. I will check off the box for Willie Anderson and Rondé Barber and John Lynch. So there you go, guys. We don't have to reveal our ballots. We've already told you three of our 15 <laughs> names. I would suspect that Peyton Manning and Charles Woodson are also on there, too. Anyway, um, speaking of that, Ira, there, there are many interesting cases among these 25. But to me, there's none more interesting than Clay Matthews, who's a linebacker. He's one of five linebackers on this list, former linebacker for the Browns and the Falcons. And and for this reason, he's in his final year of eligibility, which means his 20th year. This is his 20th and last year of eligibility. Um, So I think you know all about Clay Matthews. Maybe some of our listeners don't. 278 games. He was an Ironman. He played for 19 years, over 1,500 tackles, over 80 sacks. He played outside linebacker. He could rush the passer. He could drop into coverage. He actually played special teams. He was a four-down linebacker. He was a complete player. Now, he's a a four-time pro bowler. He wasn't an all-pro, and he wasn't an all-decade player. So that weighs against him. But you, Ira, know the dangers 
of what happens to somebody who's a modern era candidate who slips into the senior pool after 20 years. So two part question. One, what do you think his chances are of making it as a finalist? I'm not talking about the Pro Football Hall of Fame as a modern era candidate. I don't think he's going to get in there, but at least getting into the room in his last year. And two, tell people what happens when these guys don't make it after 20 years and they go into the abyss, otherwise known as the senior pool. Clay Matthews is a compelling candidate, Clark, a, a high quality player for a long period of time. And yes, longevity counts, Clark. Yes, it does. And But I think he's going to have a tough time getting into the final 15. Mm. There's some other good linebackers like a Zach Thomas who made a little headway last year. Yeah. Uh, so, and Patrick Willis. Right. I mean, there's, it's a tough linebacker group. Uh, if he doesn't make it, Clark, he goes into the senior pool and you and I, uh, have been trying to lead the charge to expand the senior class. Now it's only one person per year. Clark, our, our man Rick Goslin's got a list of about 75 or 100 guys that are worthy. One player a year, Clark, that doesn't get it. That just doesn't get it. It, it doesn't, Ira. And all you have to do is look at the 10 persons who were finalists for the centennial class. And you look at that and go, you're taking one a year out of there? For the next four years, I mean, Al Wistard, we've talked about him before. He's on there. Cliff Branch is on there. There's so many worthy people in that group who are just sitting and waiting. And, you know, we go back to Eddie Metter, for instance, who's a all-decade player in the, in the, 60, in the 50s and, and early 60s. But uh, I just don't understand the refusal or reluctance to, to move more seniors in once upon a time you had two a year i thought that was good then it was two every other year now it's one a year clearly they, they don't care as much about them as you and i and the members of the senior committee do uh i think one thing clark that i think we're all in agreement on the list of worthy senior candidates dwarfs the list of worthy contributors no question there's no question about it no question and and i look at when i'm talking about clay matthews maybe some of the, the listeners would say well why would you want him in the room if you don't think he's going to make it uh, why would you want him in the room and, and i want it for this reason because we keep bringing him back as a semifinalist. he's been in five times the last three years well if he keeps coming back people in that room must care about him why do we keep bringing him back and then not doing anything with him and I think I would like to hear at some point, and this is the last chance, why you keep bringing him back because he does have a compelling case. Let's hear it because he's going to go into the senior pool and you may never hear from him again. And that to me is a shame. No question. You don't want him to become Bob, uh, the, the, the new Bob Kuchenberg. That, that's yeah. the classic example. Yeah. And, and you know, I mentioned that, that um, Centennial class of guys who didn't make it. Roger Craig's another guy. I mean, he was a senior finalist uh, once. 2010. He's got a compelling case. He may never be heard from again. So um, I, I remember the Everson Walls example, and you would too, uh, when he got in as a, as a finalist, his 20th and final year, and we saw what happened. He didn't make the cut from 15 to 10, but at least his case was heard. And I thought that yeah. was good. We also yeah. saw what happened to Joe Jacoby, member of the Hogs, great offensive line for Washington. He made it as finalist in his 18th year, but not only made it as a finalist, the strangest thing I've ever seen, he became a top 10 candidate. Yeah, it's he like did. people go, what are we missing? And I thought, oh, he's now going to make it the next year. But his 19th and 20th years, he didn't make it from 15 to 10. He's in the senior pool now, and he may be gone forever. And I think that's really, that's really sad. You know, Clark, the panel changes from year to year. That's a factor. 
Yeah. So you say, well, the guy made the top 10. He's going to get in. But it's not always the same voters, Clark. Not always. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and there are people on this panel, in, in all fairness, who are younger, a lot younger than you and I. And they don't remember some of these guys. And I think there's a kind of a question of like, oh, well, who is it? Clay Matthews. I don't remember seeing him play. What was he right. an all decade player? No. Was he an all pro? No. Let's let's move forward. And I think people who did see him know that Clay Matthews passed what, Ira? The eye test for two, my friend. You got it. I test for two. Anyway, I'd like to see him make a little personal history and become a modern era finalist before it's too late. I would. And speaking of history, Ira, Ian, like to put us all in the Wayback Machine. Uh, maybe Ian doesn't know that from Rocky and Bullwinkle and his friends. I don't know. That was one of my favorite shows. But we're going to go back in the Wayback Machine with Sherman. And um, we're going to go back 40 years when this happened. It's on the line. And I don't care what's on the line, Howard. You have got to say what we know in the booth. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. Hard to go back to the game after that news flash, which in duty found we had to take. Frank. Indeed it is. That was, of course, Howard Cosell breaking the news of John Lennon's murder outside the Dakota. That's an apartment building on the west side of New York City. And he did it on the night of December 8th, 1980, during the final uh, few minutes of regulation in a Miami, New England, Monday night football telecast. And Ira, I remember hearing that, uh, and I know where I was. I'll ask you, because I know um, you spent a lot of years around New York, in and around New York. Where were you that night, and how did you find out? Clark, I'm not making up this story. I, I, I don't think you can. My uh, soon-to-be wife, we were not married yet, were in a chalet in Vermont, a chalet which we didn't get out of for about five days because we were in the early stages of our courtship, and you know what that means. And that what? night, <laughs> it was a Monday night, Clark, and... I was curled up on the couch. The game was on in the background. She was in a chair reading. Clark, I can't make this up. I was reading the Playboy magazine interview with John and Yoko. John and Yoko. And it came on the air at that moment. And I dropped the magazine. The centerfold flew out. I picked it up and put it back in. And... I could not believe it. And who else to announce it, Clark? Yeah. But but the gravitas of Howard Cosell. Um, what what a terrible moment. What an absolutely awful moment. Yeah, I was working at the Baltimore Evening Sun those days, and I was in the newsroom that night, which was unusual for me because if you were an Evening Sun guy, it was the afternoon paper. You didn't have to go in till the next day. But I was in that evening, and I remember seeing it on TV and just kind of shaking me out of my head like, you've got to be kidding me. And um, actually, Howard Cosell was wrong. He was shot in the back four times. He was shot five times, one missed, and four actually hit their target in the back. But um, I just kind of went, what? I, I couldn't believe it. And I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I, I saw that interview with John Lennon because he was very candid and open. He was talking about things about the Beatles that he either had refused to 
or really didn't acknowledge in the past and certain songs. What was this all about? What was that? And I thought, right. boy, it's fascinating interview. Um, and an interesting background on the story that I know you probably know, and maybe Ian doesn't, but um, how ABC News got that story. And they got it um, because Howard Cosell wasn't passing that on as something he had heard. It, it wasn't broken really at that point. ABC News broke the story, but he really relayed it to millions of Americans out there as it was happening. And it really happened by chance. Um, there was a young producer from uh, WABC TV in New York, his name was Alan Weiss, and he had gotten into a motorcycle accident on Central Park West that evening. Now, Ira, I know you know where Central Park West is. It's a main artery that borders Central Park, obviously on the west side, and the Dakota is on 72nd and uh, Central Park West. And he was involved in a motorcycle accident that evening, was taken to Roosevelt General Hospital before John Lennon was admitted. And he overheard doctors talking about an incoming patient named Lennon, and then later saw and heard John Lennon's wife, Yoko Ono, react to the news of his death. So somehow, um, despite his injuries, and I would think probably despite his grief, he found a phone and he telephoned ABC News. Now, that's how they got it. But as you know, Ira, in the news gathering business, you've got to be very careful about something like that. If you saw it and you can confirm it, good, but you have to have it confirmed generally by two sources, we used to say, two sources, maybe three. But anyway, he phoned it in um, and ABC News went with it, but after they confirmed it, they, they contacted Rune Arledge, who's the producer of Monday Night Football, and they told him to pass it on to the um, Monday Night Football crew, Howard Cosell, Fran Tarkin, and the play-by-play -play announcer, Frank Gifford. And Cosell actually expressed reservations about announcing it on the air, but it was Gifford who convinced him he had to do it. In fact, he told him later, um, well, he mentioned later, uh, he said to him, it's a tragic moment and it's going to shake up the entire world. He convinced Howard Cosell, you've got to do it. So he did just as Patriots kicker, John Smith, who happened to be English, jogged on the field for a 35 yard field goal. And the interesting thing about John Smith was at rookie camp, they used to haze him and have him sing Beatles songs because he loved the Beatles. But man, what a, what a really weird sort of surreal night and really sad, sad night. You know, Clark, the irony of what you just said uh, is, is, uh, cannot be believed because Cosell, the quintessential New York newsman that's right the journalist has to be prodded by frank gifford who cosell used to excoriate for not being a journalist Absolutely. that is unbelievable clark but he, he gifford later said that he thought that cosell who was a friend of john lennon's apparently had done an interview with him became a friend that he was reluctant because he said that cosell would have rather just canceled the telecast than having to announce that but you're absolutely right he was a newsman he was a newsman first and foremost, and it is sort of ironic. But, um, you know, it's funny, Ira, I, I, I think you've probably been back to New York many, many times since then. I used to live in New York for um, 15 years, and I went to the West Side hundreds of times. You go through Central Park on the path up to 72nd Street, and there's the Imagine Park. And to this day, anytime you go through there, morning, noon, evening, there are dozens, sometimes hundreds of people, generally 
visitors, um, tourists who are there either putting roses, flowers, whatever on the, the imagined site there or having their photos taken. John Lennon to this day is, is still remembered. And I do think in my mind, that's one of the most powerful moments in Monday night football history, but no, Howard Cosell's history as well. You know, and the outpouring of grief, uh, Clark, that ensued after uh, that announcement was incredible. I mean, it was immediate. Yeah. Uh, thousands of people outside the Dakota thousands. And singing, singing uh, you know, with candles and Beatles songs. I mean, immediately, chance. immediately. Yeah. 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 And that's true. Um, uh, it, it's, it, it was, um, it was sad. It was, and the, the, the irony to me is so that the saddest part is the, the shooter, a young man named Mark David Chapman, who was 25 at the time, um, came there with sort of the express purpose of, of um, killing John Lennon, but he met him earlier that day, standing outside the Dakota, as did many Beatles fans, Lennon fans, waiting for an autograph. And he got one. He signed his double fantasy album, and yeah. Chapman later said he couldn't have been nicer. Um, and after he finished signing his autograph, he said, anything else you want? And he said, no, that's it. Went back to his hotel. And of course, as we know, went back later when Lennon and Yoko Ono came back and were dropped off by Limousine and 72nd Street. But um, I think the saddest thing for me was it seemed like John Lennon. I know you're a big music fan, as I am. I'm a huge Beatles fan. It just seemed like he'd come full circle and gotten himself centered. Uh, he had a family. He cared very much about him. He was a public figure in New York. People could come up and talk to him. He didn't mind it. He was cordial. And he had come to peace with himself. And then this happens. You're absolutely right. And in retrospect, Clark, that's a heck of an album, Double Fantasy. Oh, it's, a great, really, it's a great Some great. So I love that Watching the Wheels is a fantastic song. It's, fantastic. A, it's a great album. And it seemed like there were songs that you could put on a Beatles album and go, you know what? These are great. And I, I got a more of an appreciation. I think as years go by, Ira, more of an appreciation for him than I did for McCartney because I was always a McCartney guy. But as time's gone on, I go, you know what? It, it, Lennon, he probably was the centerpiece of that group. McCartney wrote great songs. And, and that's some of the, the best, and maybe the best you've ever heard are from McCartney. I mean, uh, Hey Jude, you know, Long and Winding Road, Yesterday. But Lennon was so good and, and they were such a great combination. Um, that it just, it was sad to see. I, I guess I, well, the, other, the other thing I'll ask you is, what do you think would have happened had he lived? Um, I, I think uh, he would have kept making uh, music and, and great music. Uh, mm -hmm. And Clark, in the background, can't you hear Ian Glendon, our producer, saying, what are you guys talking yeah, about? Yeah. Double, double fantasy? I don't yeah. know anything about a double fantasy. Maybe he does, but he's just not telling us, okay? Uh, anyway, I mentioned Mark David Chapman. He is now, had to look this up, he's now uh, 65 years old, and he's incarcerated in upstate New York. Been paroled 11 times. He's been denied parole 11 times. And as I said, or the irony to me is that the guy who wrote Imagine, Give Peace a Chance, All You Need Is Love, is killed by a gun. Killed by a gun. Anyway, John Lennon was 40 years old when he died. We'll be back after this. Well, in the first half of this show, we talked about the Hall of Fame's class of 2021 and how we vote on the finalists this week. We actually vote on the finalists Wednesday, December 9th. And the results will be announced in early January, I think, Ira. Generally, it's the first yeah. week in January. Well, one of the 25 semifinalists on the list that we cut to 15 is our next guest. And that's tackle Willie Anderson, who spent all but one year with the Cincinnati Bengals, 
was a four-time All-Pro, four-time Pro Bowler, and is now a Hall of Fame semifinalist. Willie, that sounds pretty good to me. It should sound good to you. Congratulations, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, um, I'm really shocked and surprised that every time I hear that, you know, um, I tell people that I'm not, I'm not amazed that my career wasn't a Hall of Fame career. I'm more amazed that people took time enough to look at it and, and mm-hmm. to look at it and dissect it because um, of the years that I had, you know, that we, we had some bad years as, uh, as a team. And I always thought that no one watched individually a tackle uh, play good football in the midst of, you know, the team doing bad. So, yeah, to, no, you're, so, you're so, so to me to hear that every time is, is amazing that I'm, I'm sitting here with you guys and I'm, I'm so blessed you guys have, have honored me to be in this position. Well, I will give a plug to one of our colleagues. And that's Jeff Hobson of uh, Bengals.com. He's a Hall of Fame voter. He mm-hmm. mentioned you every time we're in that room. And I think people finally listen. People said, okay, you know, let's take a look at his candidacy. Yeah, wow. um, well, in speaking of your candidacy, I mentioned you're a semifinalist for Canton, which you are uh, for the first time in your career. And, and as mm-hmm. I said, I do think that's a big deal. What did you think when you were told, when you first heard about it? Um, there was a guy who, was, uh, who I've done a couple of Zoom calls with. He's a big Bengals fan, um, young guy. Um, and I, I've done some Zoom calls. He's, a, he's him and his friend of bloggers. And um, so during the pandemic, I've been doing a lot of blogs, a lot of Zoom calls with people. And um, he and his friend with two of the bloggers, Bengal guys I did it for. And um, he actually called me. He's a, he's a diehard Bengal fan. And I was driving. And I saw the text, you know, texting and driving. I shouldn't be done. I looked look down and I said, what did he say? And so I, <laughs> and so I actually, honest to God, I pulled over the side of the road. I said, man, this dude is joking with me. He's playing around with me like this. I said, they're probably thinking about Willie Flipper Anderson. <laughs> because on Twitter, I've been, you know, for, for years, uh, I stay here in Atlanta and Flipper lives in the, here in Georgia too. At one time, he stayed for years. And so for, for about 15, 20 years, I got all his football cards. And I found out through a mutual friend, a friend of ours, he has all my football cards. <laughs> so I thought for sure. Or also the Willie Anderson that played in the NBA lives here in Georgia. And I once trained his son before. So I was like, okay, this, this, this must be a mistake. So I, I go to Twitter and I sit on Twitter. I said, man, I'm not, I'm not going to comment yet. I saw the Bingo fans going crazy. I said, I'm not going to comment yet because this has to be a mistake. <laughs> I said, so I don't want to be embarrassed by coming and say, oh, Willie, we made a mistake. That was something else. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, like you, Flipper was a pretty good player. He caught over 300 yards. Yeah, he did. In the game, that's right. Yeah, he was a really good That's receiver. right. Uh, I got a quick question for you, college background. I mean, you grew up in Mobile, right, Alabama? Mm-hmm. But you went to Auburn. Yeah. How did, how did the University of Alabama miss on you? That, see, that, that's funny you said that. And, and only people inside of Alabama would know how weird that is for me to do that. Um, I grew up obviously in Mobile. Alabama runs that city. Uh, University of Alabama runs that city. I was a diehard Bama fan. I grew up loving Bobby Humphrey. Grew up watching Bill Curry coach and all these guys. Kennedy's Bennett, another Hall of Fame guy. Um, so my senior year, I was the number one lineman in the country. I was the uh, first offensive lineman to win 6A player of the year in Alabama. And um, Terry Bowden and, and Auburn just, it just, they, 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 they made a big difference on I me. Mean, really with Rick Trickett, my offensive line coach, who who actually was, was, was recruiting me at Mississippi State. And I was like, well, there's no, there's no way in the world I'm going to Mississippi State. <laughs> so um, grew up loving Tennessee and Bama. Actually grew up not liking Auburn. I mean, if, if you're an Alabama fan, you can't like Auburn. <laughs> but I just felt, I went on my visit, man, and, and um, Auburn just made a big impact on me. 
in my career, I mean, in my visit, and um, it, it was amazing. Like for me to pick Auburn was, was a really big deal. Um, I, I went to one of my visits. I went with went to three visits. I went to Alabama, Auburn, and Tennessee. And people in Mobile, if, if that was social media around this time, I'd probably be the biggest ridicule recruit ever because no one in the world thought I would pick Auburn. But I, I felt at home with the people. Um, I knew they were on a losing season, and I wanted to go build something new. At the time, um, Coach um, Coach Stallings, no guys, just won a national championship. Uh, my high school, Viagra High School, was um, the first and only um, national championship um, in Alabama history in 88, my eighth grade year. And we had several guys at Alabama on the team that year. But I just felt more at home with the people of Auburn, and I didn't want to be a bandwagon guy. Like, like everybody expected me to go to Bama, the championship team. I wanted to go rebuild Auburn, and we did that. We, we, we won our first 20 games, my first 20, 20 games in my career. And um, unfortunately, we were on probation, but uh, had some great times at Auburn, and I love Auburn football. So, Willie, I got a question for you. I'm going to bring you back to your early days in the NFL. You Willie, you come in in 96. Now, I don't want to, uh, I don't like reminding you this, and you're not going to like it, but nine years, Willie, nine years without a winning season, That's right crazy. in Cincinnati. All yeah. kinds of coaches, the staffs changed, the quarterbacks changed. A lot of quarterbacks. <laughs> Willie, what kept you going, and, and how rough a period was that until uh, Marvin turned things around? Luckily, I was young enough to go through it, and, um, um, you know, to, to kill Spice, and I talk about this a lot, about uh, what we what we had to persevere through those tough times. And, and you you have, during those times, we, we talked a lot about having individual pride. You know, you know, individual pride takes you, it's only it's only going to take individual pride for a tackle. Those nine years, we, we, we were down a lot. And so at the, at the end of the game, we're throwing the football. So that's, that, that's a time when these defense linemen are going to feast. And it, it took individual pride for guys to say, you know, with Paul Alexander, our O-line coach, saying, hey, don't be the guy that when we watch film on Monday, you don't be the guy, be the reason we, we lose in the game. And, and don't be the guy to give up those sacks. So I, I took pride in, 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 in during those times we were losing, man, especially in the fourth quarters of individuals not allowing my guy to get to the quarterback and, and knowing that we have to pass the ball, knowing we're down two or more touchdowns sometimes, and um, you're fighting individually for your self-pride because someone's going to always watch the film. You know, that, that film is going to carry you over. And ironically, when, when Marvin got to the Bengals in 03, he talked a lot about um, the individual battles we all had against him at Baltimore and how he marveled at some of the guys like myself and other guys that still kept fighting through those tough times. Because also with me too, living, let me tell you a crazy story, living here in Atlanta, a lot of guys live here in the offseason. And I never wanted to run across any of these guys and let, and let them have the feeling to say, hey, I, I, I beat Big Willie ass during the season. And, you know, so individually, that was my own self-pride that I say, hey, I want to I have some pride amongst that. And um, it was funny, when Tequila left before Marvin got there, um, Tequila told me in the offseason, he said, man, don't, don't, don't think that people around the league haven't been watching us play. I said, Spice, man, they, they, they don't care. They, I mean, we're losing. And it took us just winning eight games for me, to, for, me, for me to go to my first Pro Bowl and make my first All-Pro team. And I said, man, geez, I, I was doing this seven years ago. I'm, I'm an old man now. And my, <laughs> my uh, individual success accolades came with the team winning. So those tough years, were, they were tough, but it took 
just having individual pride of you wanting to make sure you put your best on film because you, because you never know who's going to be watching during those times. Hey, Willie, in uh, 2003, um, Carson comes to the team. He's the Heisman Trophy winner, first pick in the draft, Willie. But he doesn't play yeah. as a rookie. He sits behind John Kittner. What, what was going through the minds, uh, Willie, uh, of, of the Bengals and you? And were you saying to yourself, where's this guy Palmer? What's going on? No, actually, I was one of the vets that went to Marvin and told Marvin, we, we didn't, don't take a quarterback at the first pick of the draft. We're good with John Kittner. That, that, that tell you how smart of a GM I am. So, <laughs> so we, we all, like John Kidden, I call John Kidden one of my best teammates ever, man, because the selflessness he, he, he displayed and what he did for Carson was, was unparalleled. But we all love John Kidden. And it took John Kidden telling, telling me personally, say, Big Willie, this kid Carson is something different. I can't do what he does. He's going to take his team to places where I can never imagine taking his team to. So for, for John Kidden to say that and to support Carson, and the things John did behind the scene, just, just it, it meant so much to me. I, I love that guy to this day. I love John Kidner because um, he showed so much. Um, he showed much, so much selflessness to help Carson and help our team out. But we all, you know, John John played so John played well that first year. Um, but when Carson got in there, we immediately knew he was something different. And that you know, our offense immediately went from let's get Corey and Rudy hundred yards a game to let's protect Carson at all costs. <laughs> Willie, I was going to ask you about uh, the position you played, which was not only tackle, it was right tackle. Mm -hmm. And as you know, when the Hall of Fame acts on tackles, almost universally, it's left tackles. Yes. And there seems to be a prevailing opinion that there's sort of a bias towards that position because, right, the best edge rushers are on that side. So Except cool. you had to face Strahan. Mm -hmm. You had to face a guy like Peppers, a guy mm -hmm. like Kevin Green. Um, and, and that's become more recent, I think, than it was in the past. And, and yes. I guess what I'd ask you, because you're the first time semifinalist, and I sort of am amazed it took you that long to get here. But I do think it has something to do with the right tackle position. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's something to that argument that people really don't notice right tackles? Absolutely. Um, I spent my entire career fighting that with the Bengals to, to to, to pay me a bigger paycheck during, during, during my agency. <laughs> I, I would show Katie Blackbrown, say, Katie, so, so Katie, if you're saying that the right tackles, so I, I would ask Katie, I said, so Katie, who's the best lineman on the team? She said, you. I said, okay, well, I play right tackle. So I had to show, I show, I literally show her one year where I face, just on our own team, I face guys with more sacks than uh, my guy Rod Jones was back in the 90s, uh, Levi Jones, Richmond Webb, a couple of years, and they really didn't see it because the, the myth of, of the Lawrence Taylor era, which, which was justified. You know, Lawrence came and teams were throwing those guys over the left tackle. So having a guy like Munoz and these great guys in the 80s, that meant something. But football changed. And it changed without a lot of fanfare. And I don't think the media people, like, to me, the biggest detrimental to the right tackles was the book, the book and the movie The Blind Side. <laughs> Because, <laughs> because average day people thought all the blind side. And so on my Twitter account, I started about three, four years ago. Um, the Bengals gave me my career of all my film on a hard drive. So I started uploading a lot of my games based with Reggie White and Julius Pepper on my Instagram and Twitter. And I would show people, I would say, look, look where the quarterback, look where his head is turned. His head is turned. The blind side can be either play at different times according to what the, the position of the quarterback. And, and I, I showed them times that, look, if I give a sack up right here, Carson's head is turned this way. 
I'm not his blind side guy because he can see that he can see that defense end right there. And sometimes I think media members didn't really break it down. And for years, I did it with Jeff Hobson for years, showing him, hey, look, look at what teams are doing. Teams are putting better guys on both sides down. When the NFL became a quarterback lead around 05, 06, we gave Carson $100 million. Teams started saying, hey, we got to put guys everywhere to go kill these quarterbacks. So both linemen became important, but that was toward the end of my career. Now at Pro Football Focus, you can see a guy like uh, Mitch Schwartz and Lane Johnson, these guys, uh, Trent Brown. You can see the importance of these guys now because teams are now, they started in 05. They started putting the rushers everywhere where Freeney and Mattis playing on the team. The Broncos got two guys playing. You know, everybody got two guys now. And now you can see an impact now. I think guards are going to start getting more look now because I train linemen here at my academy. Right. And you see more now. It's more pressure now from a, a three technique to come in the quarterback's face to get pressure up the middle. So now guards like Quinn Nelson are getting called the best lineman in the league now because they're doing so much stuff now at keeping guys out of the quarterback's face. So, you know, when I was fighting that back in the 90s and 2000s, I'm fighting these guys every year. Like, 06, I played against, um, like, five guys who were the top five um, pass rushers. It was a guy, Derek Burgess, mm-hmm. with, like, 15, 17 sacks, Peppers one year, Mathis, all these guys in the same year. And I'm like, geez, like people, people saying that the right tackle is not facing anybody. Then, also, in the, in the 90s, we ran the football. So, right tackles have to, have to face the bigger, stronger defensive ends who were against run protection now not now not so much now because no one runs the football at the rate we did back then so well speak, speaking of you know some of the better pass rushers i mean in your career in your 13 seasons i think you faced nine of the top mm-hmm. 11 sackers mm-hmm. nine of the top 11 mm-hmm. and you gave up one sack one and that was to bruce smith who's yes. obviously a hall of famer do you yes. remember that play and and how do you explain Man, that have, kind of success i have that play on film i watched it for the first time and um the, the game I played with Bruce Smith, I will say this. Like, I grew up a Bruce Smith fan. I wanted to be Bruce Smith and Reggie White as all big kids. And no one, no one back then grew up wanting to be a lineman. And uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I faced Bruce Smith. I watched the film, and he gave me – he he didn't get a sack the whole game, but I was, I was under pressure and fire all damn game. And uh, so, obviously, you know, we, we were losing the game. He goes out of the game. And I was like, oh, my God. I shut down Bruce Smith. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a 21-year-old rookie. I'm happy as hell. We losing. I'm happy as hell. Like, like yo, I didn't shut down. He goes to the sideline, takes his hat off, put, put his hat on, and we run about three, four more plays. And I guess he must have got pissed off because that's that was the year he was defensive player of the year, 96. And he must have got pissed off. Like, come on, I got I to beat this rookie. We run about four more plays. I see him throw his hat to the ground. <laughs> I'm in the huddle like, what the hell is he doing? And Eric Wilhelm, our backup quarterback, was calling the play. I'm watching Bruce Smith walk on the field. I'm like, what the hell is he doing? I'm in the huddle. I hear the play. I'm seeing Bruce. I'm like, what is he doing? Like, why are you back in the game? There's only like a minute and five seconds left in the game. Like, what are you doing back here? And we called a play, man. It was called fire left. And I blocked him. I got my hands on him. And he did that patent Bruce Smith dip move where he dipped like at an angle where no man can dip that low and turn a corner on you. And he turned the corner on me, man. I, I was taking him in a circle and I took him right to the quarterback. And I don't, I don't know if you guys remember, uh, Dennis Hopkins, Dennis, 
the actor Dennis Hoffman, Dennis Hopper. Yeah. Hopper. Hopper. Uh, yeah. yeah, Dennis Hopper. He, he had a he had a he had a commercial with Bruce Smith for Nike. He would say Bruce Smith's a bad man, bad man. So on the set, they played that commercial on the big screen. <laughs> 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 and Dennis Hopper came on the screen like he's a bad man. I was all, I was depressed. Uh... The, the whole crowd was screaming Bruce and so um but I came in the league known as a, as a run guy because, you know, in college football, we ran the football. You know, it was a running league. But I quickly learned that I, I had to be a shutdown pass protector. And, and, and I learned that great guys were doing both. The great guys were blocking for a 1,400-yard running back, and they were also shutting guys down as a protector. So, so the older I got, I became more in, intense in my technique to where I just realized my fourth year, guys couldn't beat me if I played at a high – if I, if I really focused and learned technique and watched film and really focused, because like I said, we were down a lot and guys were going to feast on us if he wasn't good. So my fourth through from 99 to 01, I gave up no sacks. And I always said, I wish pro football focus was around then. They can, they can talk about that, but they, they weren't around then. There was no Twitter to show highlights. So I show myself on Twitter. I show during those times, the games I played, you know, guys weren't beating me and we had a running game and, for a guy like Corey Dillon, who I think should be a Hall of Famer too, he had no, no passing game. You know, Corey is running for these yards with really, really no passing game. So it was tough playing, playing to those times. But like I say early, individual pride kept carries you through. Willie, I got one more for you, Willie, and thanks for doing this. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, guys. Willie, 2005 season, really good year for the Bengals. Mm-hmm. And Willie, you played the Steelers in a playoff game. And I think on the first Bengal series, uh, Palmer throws a 66-yard touchdown and he wrecks his knee on the same play, Willie. Uh, the first few minutes of the game, you end up losing. I think Pittsburgh won the Super Bowl that year. Um, Willie, how good was that Bengal team? And do you think you, you might have beaten the Steelers that day had not Carson gone down? That was that was the first time we would go into Pittsburgh, and we um, that year we we beat them at Pittsburgh. Um, one of the few times in my career that that had happened, and that team was set up also in that play. Carson Palmer threw that completion to uh, rest in peace, Chris uh, Chris Chris Henry, and yes. the same play. Chris Henry tore his knee up at the same time, so yes. we lose our one of our best deep our, our best deep ball receiver and Chris Henry, and we lose Carson the same play. It was just. It was, I, I, I turned around that play and saw Carson on the ground screaming. It's a, it's a scene that no lineman wants to see. Um, um, I, have, I have a group text of my ex, ex-teammates. That I, I sent a picture of Joe Burrow, of him going to the sideline when he tore his knee a couple weeks ago. And all our guys all said, man, it reminded them so much of watching Carson go down. And like the eerie feeling that we had, like it's just seeing Carson screaming on the ground. We all started yelling. Like we... We, we knew Kimo Van Hoff. Kimo, he didn't try to do it. Um, he was pushing to the guy, but it was just a, you know, it ended a, it ended a lot of things. And, uh, you know, that, that year, if we could have won that playoff game, I think um, it would have catapulted because you know, we had a defense that was giving Carson the ball back at an at a unbelievable rate. I want to say we led the league in interceptions and turnovers. So anytime you give a Pro Bowl quarterback in a, in a running game, what we had, kept giving the ball back, you would win games. And I think we was like 11 and five that season. Probably two more games. We could have won two more games, been 13 and three. Um, and it really was our best time to win the Super Bowl. Um, that injury hurt us. 
And um, it changed a lot of things and changed the course of a lot of guys' careers too after that. Willie, I've got a couple of quick questions and that's it. Uh, first off, who's the toughest guy you ever faced? The most, the most nerve wracking was Bruce Smith. The guy who I felt like I was playing against my dad was, was, was Reggie White. And because I, I've never played a guy who was strong with me, who if he hit into me, I, I tell folks all the time, when Reggie hit into you, your skeleton shake, it shook. Like, <laughs> like I, I shut him down, but he beat, he beat my ass up really, really good. I was 23 years old, he was 36. He led the league in sacks that year. And I never felt a guy put his hands on me. And I felt like this guy's really stronger than me. He, he's bigger, he's just as big as I am. He's stronger, he's faster. So to me, having that, that shock in my head at 23 years old of every time he would bull rush into me, I would feel my skeleton shake. Hmm. And uh, um, I, was, I was pretty banged up after him about two weeks after that. No, I'm sorry, three or four weeks after that, I was banged up my wrist, my shoulder, like he, he, he was a low and I, I, I was playing at 340. I mean, like, like I said, I shut him down, but he really took a toll on your body physically. And I can see how guys who were lighter than me, they didn't have a chance. You know what I mean? They didn't have a chance because he was so damn strong and he was fast. It was just, he presented the ultimate challenge to guys. Um, him and um, when I got older, Robert Mathis because of his size, because we went from the six foot six defensive ends to a guy who's 6'1", who could do an inside spin move, outside spin move, who can, like, I've never had a defensive end duck under my hand. <laughs> and Mattis can do that. He, he caused problems for taller, bigger tackles. And secondly, if and when you get into that room as a finalist, and hopefully it's 2021, if you had the chance standing in front of voters, what would you tell them to convince them that, yes, I am Hall of Fame worthy? First, I would, I would thank them for just even looking at my career because I, I truly told myself every year around this time, I was going to be, I was going to be sad and depressed, but I was going to be thankful that my name came on the ballot just to be nominated. And I never thought it would move past the semifinal. To the sem I never thought it would move to the semifinalists. So I would thank them guys. First of all, thank all you guys for considering me, but I played in the era of the golden era of tackles. You know what I mean? And I played against guys, like I said, you can look, you can look in the era I played with, you know, with, with Ogden and Pace and Rolf and all these guys. And we all were fighting for, uh, we all were fighting for all pros and only two guys go. You know, in the AFC, we all were fighting for two spots at the tackle position for the Pro Bowl. Only two guys can go. So there had to be more guys playing at a high level than were just picked by the awards. And I'm so happy that guys are not just considering the awards because I do feel like during those losing years, I missed on about six Pro Bowls and about four or five more first team All Pros. Um, um, so, but only two guys can go, you know? So, and if you look at the division we played in, playing, playing Pittsburgh twice a year, playing the Ravens twice a year with, with those guys they had from Peter Bowler to Suggs to uh, Michael McCrary, all those guys back in the days to Trevor Price, playing those guys twice a year and Pittsburgh and Aaron Smith and Joey Porters, you know, guys, to be alignment in that division, you know, playing against the, um, um, Houston, the, the Houston Texans, the Oilers back then, linemen had to play at a high rate to be even considered for an award. So um, I know I had the respect of my peers throughout those years. I just was not getting the votes that were called Pro Bowls and All Pros that kind of solidify guys' legacies.
Willie Anderson, congratulations. You just made our Hall of Fame all interview team. <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank very you much for your thank time. You and best of luck with the class of 2021 vote. Thank you so much, Thanks, guys. Willie. Thank Thanks, you. Willie. Thank you. Thank you. That was former Bengals and Baltimore Ravens star offensive tackle Willie Anderson. And Ira, um, I think he is Hall of Fame worthy. I mean, he makes a great case. And I think all you have to do is look at the tape and you understand how good he was. I think he's on my all articulate team. The guy's fantastic. <laughs> he just made it. He did. Um, I loved hearing his stories. I love hearing that Bruce Smith story. He just, he just... Whoa, whoa. There's our cue for weekly. I was there. I think they're applauding for Willie Anderson. I don't think they're applauding for you. <laughs> One great interview. Boy, I enjoyed that. I could talk to him for hours, but uh, he was terrific. Anyway, our, where are you going today? I have no idea where you're going. Where's the Wayback Machine going? Clark, I'm, I'm going to one of the most amazing playoff games, and I covered a lot of them, as you did. Yeah, I um, did, yeah. The date was January 8th, 1984. RFK Stadium, cold, windy, NFC championship game. 49ers at Redskins. Now, Clark, Washington is the defending Super Bowl champions. Yep. Defending. Mark Mosley is the defending MVP, MVP. of the league. Yes. Of the league. A kicker. So it's the 83 season, Clark. The Redskins score like 541 points. They set the all-time record. Unstoppable offense. I'm there for the United Press International, and here we go. Three-quarter score. Redskins 21, 49ers 0. 0. 21 nothing. Montana totally shackled. Joe Gibbs on the sidelines. And what happens? Well, three touchdown passes later by Montana in the fourth quarter. It's 21-21. Redskins get the ball. Final six minutes, they start driving. It bogs down. 27-yard interference penalty. Eric Wright. A flag. The quote from Bill Walsh after the game. That was a ball a 10-foot-tall Boston Celtic couldn't have (laughs) caught. But Clark, Clark, as you well know, they very rarely call uncatchable pass. Yes, correct. Don't call uncatchable pass. All right, so that drives them. And now it's third and five. They throw it into the right corner. Incomplete. Incomplete. With about four minutes left, and they're going to set up for the field goal, but it's going to give Montana time to get, you know, four minutes. And instead, holding on Ronnie Lott away from the play on the other side of the field, the other side of the field. Ronnie Lott, you're calling it on. Mosley, who had missed four field goals in that game. Four. Kicks the 25-yarder with 20 seconds left. Redskins 24, 49ers 21. Montana doesn't have enough time. He throws a desperation pass, picked off, and the Redskins move on to the Super Bowl in Tampa against the Raiders, which they lost. But what a comeback by the Niners. Clark, you don't call holding on Ronnie Lott away from the play. Absolutely. Um, And Clark, you among all people are going to appreciate this. Paul Zimmerman. Our man, Dr. Z, writes it up for Sports Illustrated. 
And here is the quote from Paul Zimmerman. The call on right wasn't bad, comma, it was criminal, unquote. <laughs> Must have been that criminal element of the A little home cooking at RFK, Clark. A little home cooking. <laughs> oh, that's criminal element that, that Noah was talking about. Oh, that was in Oakland across the bay. <laughs> anyway, that Niners team the next year went to the Super Bowl. And they won it. Remember, they beat uh, Dan Marino and the Miami Dolphins. That is right. Final thoughts, Ira? All right, final thought. Clark, maybe the league has to start thinking about putting in a lottery system for the draft like the NBA does, and I'll tell you why. In 2014, the Bucs wanted that number one pick. They're beating the Saints 20-7. to Ian remembers the game after three quarters. 27. Who doesn't play in the fourth quarter? Mike Evans and Levante David. They're taken out of the game. Bucks lose. We ask uh, Lovey Smith, what happened? Well, we wanted to look at some other guys. Some other guys. <laughs> these are your best players. And Clark, what's the latest example? Greg Williams with this ridiculous call. We'll never know what was behind it. But the optics are not good, Clark. It doesn't look good. Yeah, no, that's right. Good. Well, maybe the Jets in future years can give Greg Williams a big Thank you for what happened there because they'll get the first pick of the draft. Hopefully he'll get Trevor Lawrence for them. But anyway, uh, my final thought, Ira, here's to Bill Polian, you know, Hall of Fame GM and friend of the show. He turns 78 today. Whoa. And, and also to aviator Chuck Yeager, who died at the age of 97. And I know you know all about him, Ira. Uh, he was a World War II flying ace. He broke the sound barrier in 1947. That's when you were covering the, uh, who were you covering them? The Giants? He, uh, who were the Titans? Uh, Clark, he, he had the right stuff, Clark. He did he have the right, the right stuff. stuff. That's right. He, he uh, set sound barrier in a Bell X1, set altitude and speed records. And as Ira mentioned, was popularized in the book and the movie, The Right Stuff. Uh, and his wife said, an incredible life well lived. Absolutely. Um, that's going to do it. Uh, Ira, tell people where they can find you on Twitter. At iKaufman76. And thank you again to Willie Anderson. He was fantastic. He was fantastic. And Ian, how about you on Twitter? I am at IGLEN31. Okay, and I'm at, at ClarkJudgeTOF. And if we don't hear from you, you'll hear from us right here next week, same time, at the iTest for Two on FullPressRadio.com. Thanks for listening.